The COVID-19 pandemic has pushed the reality of health disparities front and center in our national dialogue. While vaccine disparities between racial and ethnic groups have improved in recent weeks, black and Hispanic communities still lag behind. African-American residents are dying at nearly six times the rate of white residents in Chicago. There's a list of reasons why the Latino population is being disproportionately affected by this. Yamiche Alcindor has this report on how these disparities are affecting communities on the ground. Racial health disparities aren't new, and at this point, they're well-documented. Is it time to stop talking about the mere existence of health disparities and start talking about why they exist and how to stop them? For healthcare professionals, we need to now focus on the why. What are the health inequities that are causing these issues? And we need to remember that equal's not always fair. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today, the battle against health inequities. Last year, public health leaders across the country declared a public health emergency. And I'm not talking about COVID-19, I'm talking about racism. Jamila Martin is a professor of nursing at Old Dominion University. She says racism's direct impact on health is well-documented. What we know less about is how to fix it. Historically, we, we really only looked at health behavior and health literacy. And what that did was it really just placed the fault and the onus on the individual's uh, behavior and a lack of health literacy as the reason why the incidence, prevalence, and outcomes are different for different groups of people. So there's this strong misconception that health illiteracy and unhealthy behaviors are what contributes to the outcomes. But as far back as 2012, researchers found that the disparities in mortality persist even after we adjust for socioeconomic status and health behaviors. So what that means is that health behaviors and health literacy are a very, very small part of the story. In addition to those, there are differences in access, meaning um, that folks might have a lack of insurance, uh, lack of transportation, difficulty getting to appointments. Um, we've even found that there are differences in specialist referral rates if you're Black. There are differences in quality of care received. So there are increased uh, rates of infant mortality, preterm births, and low birth weight babies. And that's been directly linked to structural racism and associated inequities in educational and occupational opportunities. What do you mean we advised Black women and men to take care of themselves and get knowledgeable about when to get testing and how to read the signs in their bodies? How is that not sufficient to help them overcome the health disparities that African-Americans are still experiencing? Because even as African-Americans have the knowledge and the drive and the healthy behaviors that would support healthy outcomes, there are still differences in health access. There are still differences in quality of care received. Um, there are differences in the strength of the relationships between the providers and the patients. Uh, and then there are even sociological differences in lifetime experiences that contribute to chronic disease. And a new theory that people are looking at now is this theory of diminished gains, which um, suggests that socioeconomic indicators like education, income, and employment status show smaller effects for African-Americans compared to non-Hispanic whites. So there are so many factors that contribute to a person's health, and health literacy and healthy behaviors are just a very small part of that story. Have you seen this yourself as a healthcare educator, that this tendency to go from asking people to be knowledgeable about the industry and what signs to look for in their bodies and the idea that we need to actually train healthcare workers has changed since the time you became a nurse educator? Um, it has changed, but it is changing very slowly, I must admit. <laughs> <laughs> we, yeah. you know, as health educators, we are still really very focused on health literacy and health education and healthy behaviors. And um, where we maybe have transitioned to looking at unconscious bias, I think that there's even a bigger picture that needs to be explored. And so the area is um, 
it's ripe for innovation and innovation in thought and exploration of some of these topics so that we can really help people to understand the, the broader picture of what is happening with health inequities and disparities. You're focusing on how we can address the inequities that come from the healthcare workers themselves. How does an individual provider affect the inequities? How can they make a difference in the quality of care? Well, at first, actually, it starts with changing your mindset that that health disparities are what we should be focused on. Because again, looking simply at health disparities, which are the differences in the health outcomes, really means that you're placing the onus as a provider on that individual patient to make changes that aren't often in their control. And so we need to evaluate whether attempting to achieve an equal healthcare system is really enough to correct centuries of disadvantage. You know, and then we we also need to really, as healthcare providers, we have an opportunity to affect change in the political realm as well. We need to advocate for some policy changes. We need to start thinking about some anti-racist action plans. Um, we need to undertake specific and intentional action to help mitigate racism in healthcare. And so we need to look from a personal perspective in terms of our own unconscious bias, but we also need to begin raising awareness at the systems level and the leadership level and, and policy level as well. Can you give me examples of the kinds of things you mean? What sort of bias do healthcare workers have and institutions like hospitals and doctor's offices have? I think there's a longstanding bias uh, about African-Americans' ability to achieve health, our desire to achieve health, um, the kinds of health issues that we face, and our strength related to being able to heal from diseases and, and um, conditions. So I can tell you a personal story. Um, I, I have been diagnosed with hypertension a long time ago during, during my pregnancy with my son. And after I had my son, after I gave birth to my son, I was still having these issues with hypertension. And so one day I went into my primary care physician's office and I was there for my annual checkup. And we sat and we talked. He discussed my medications. He um, was a really, really nice, genuine man and physician. But he never put a stethoscope to my chest. He never actually... Huh. did any kind of evaluation in terms of, you know, head-to-toe assessment in terms of my condition. And so I said to him, I said, well, you know, I've been feeling like my blood pressure has been up lately. And he said, why do you think that your blood pressure is high? And I said, because I can feel it. I can feel when my blood pressure gets high. And he looked at me with this kind of uh, indignation and, and almost a smirk on his face. And he said, you can't feel when your blood pressure is high. That's just not possible. Mm. And in that moment, I felt really written off to the extent that I just didn't say anything because I, I knew what I was experiencing. And as a healthcare provider, I know that that's not true. Um, and <laughs> so, but he may or may not have known that I was a healthcare provider. He may have or may not have taken the time to look in my chart to see that I, you know, had this this knowledge and education. But but he, he but he wrote it off. He said, "You you can't feel when your blood pressure is high." Um, as if, mm -hmm. as if it was just a joke. And so those are the kinds of things that people experience. Um, I haven't experienced this personally, but people of color are less likely to receive tests and treatments and their symptoms are ignored. And then we're often offered less desirable services. For instance, if a person has diabetes and their diabetes hasn't been well well controlled, then they may experience some peripheral neuropathy, which is uh, where they're, they're experiencing some nerve conditions in their feet. And um, for African-Americans, amputations are more likely to be offered than any other types of treatments for those neuropathy conditions in their feet. So let's say so many of these nurses and doctors are like the man that you dealt with when it came to your high blood pressure. What's going on with them? 
Is that implicit bias? Is that ignorance? Is that deliberate racism or meanness? I think it is a combination of all of those things. I don't think that we can say that everyone in the healthcare field is deliberately racist or prejudiced. I don't even know if we can say that everyone um, has unconscious biases. But collectively, as a system, we know that if biases and racism exist outside of the healthcare system, they're going to exist within the healthcare system. And so a part of that really is educating providers on how to recognize their own unconscious biases. But we can't stop there. We, we must also take it to the systematic level because just addressing the unconscious bias at the individual level completely ignores the entire ecological perspective that is, um, you know, the society, the community, the organization, the individual. And so we all work within this ecological framework. And if we're just focusing on the individual, which is the provider in this case, then we are solely focusing on one of those six or seven concentric circles that make up this healthcare system. And that's just not going to be enough to move the needle. So what are some of the specific actions useful to adopt for hospitals and doctor's offices to combat this? Some practical steps that they can take really um, are to engage the community, get out and talk to the people who live and work in their communities Talk to the patients that they serve. Maybe do some surveys and find out what the patients need. Uh, A big part of mitigating these issues is that we have a shared vision and agenda for change and that it needs to be um, through strategic and intentional partnerships. So we, we need to figure out what works for specific communities via conversations with those individuals and leaders within those communities. Can you think of places to start? Let's say somebody who teaches at a nursing school or at a medical school or the director of a major hospital or a doctor's office or a collection of doctors at a doctor's office, what are two or three things that you could suggest they do to just take baby steps at beginning to address this? Hmm. You know, one excellent baby step is to look at the people who you have on your boards, on your governing boards and in leadership roles and determine if those individuals that you have on those boards and in leadership roles are representative uh, broadly of the United States population in terms of diversity, but also whether or not they're representative of the communities that we serve. Because it, it is so important to have people who can speak to the lived experiences to be able to infuse that qualitative perspective and help people understand the true impact of uh, disparities and health inequities. And so if you can just start by looking at your leadership and intentionally being inclusive of African-Americans and other folks, Black and Indigenous people of color, then that's, that, that is a small but a very powerful start. We have a long way to go, but it's 400 plus years of undoing that we can't fix overnight. But I will say that just because it is a huge undertaking doesn't mean we should be scared to undertake it. We have to just get started. Jamila Martin, thank you for sharing all of this wisdom on With Good Reason. Thank you, and thank you so much for having me. It's been my pleasure. Jamila Martin is a professor of nursing at Old Dominion University. Cancer is caused by a combination of factors, including genetics, lifestyle, and environmental causes. But the specifics of how those factors combine are still mysterious. Dr. Lee Lee is chair of the Department of Family Medicine at University of Virginia Health. He studies colon cancer in particular 
and is trying to understand the factors that cause African Americans to get and die of colon cancer at much higher rates than white Americans. Dr. Lee, we've known for many years there are higher rates of colon cancer for African Americans. How much higher? How significant? We're talking about about 20% uh, more uh, high risk amongst African Americans compared to European Americans. And are African Americans more likely to die from their colon cancer than their white counterparts? Yes, yeah, so African Americans are more likely to get the cancer, die because at a younger age, and more likely to die from the cancer, colorectal cancer, compared to European Americans. Why do you surmise this is happening? When we think about cancer, we think it's about you know, it's a genetic disease, but in reality, it's really it's a multi-factors, especially we're talking about individual lifestyle, where you live, the community, the access to food, access to uh, fresh vegetables, and talking about environment in terms of air pollution. I think all these societal factors, as well as biological background, will work together to drive the risk of cancer, colorectal cancer in particular. Tell me about an experience you had when you worked in Cleveland, and there was research there that showed two zip codes seven miles apart have a 20-year difference in life expectancy for the people in those two zip codes? Yes, that actually was a highlight, actually, when I was at Cleveland. So we did a research in the community. So at the time, it's about 10 years ago, the Robert Jones Foundation has done the mapping, they call it geomapping, of the life expectancy based on the zip code. And it's shocking, actually. So in the inner city of Cleveland, compared to east suburban, about seven miles away, the life expectancy is 20 years apart difference. That's huge. It cannot be explained by anything, just biology or genetics. Really, actually, societal environment, as well as the you know air quality, water, food security, everything would play a big role in this disparity. And we are only now in research starting to scratch the surface of that, trying to understand how those environmental larger upstream factors interact with people's biology to drive this disparity. Could you pinpoint a few of the early death factors that you saw between the two zip codes? Yes, a lot is infant mortality, as well as high incidence of cancer and chronic disease like lung cancer, COPD, diabetes, all of these. We're talking about all these chronic disease, comorbidities. We think about modern lifestyle, and the cancer is one of them. Tell me about some of the contributing factors we might think of as choices, but really are made for us by where we live and the environmental circumstances. Yes. In the past, when we talk about disease in a very simple way, we're thinking about, we call this gene and environment interaction, meaning that it's a complex interplay of the genetic background of each individual and the environment, living environment. Science has gradually moved forward and we know more now that it's not just the individual lifestyle. It's really actually where you live matters tremendously to your health as well as policy. For example, actually, I spent my 18 years in the inner city of Cleveland, the city, meaning that we know that fresh vegetable fruits intake decrease your risk for many diseases, including obesity, heart disease, diabetes, and cancer. But for many people living in the inner city, they have no access at all to fresh fruit and vegetables. And regardless of the genetic background, this is a huge risk. And then on top of that, different people have different genetics. I think the interplay of biology and in the background of both individual environment as well as a larger society environment drives this disparity. Was there a moment in your career where you had an experience that really drove that home for you? Yes. So I was, I did my residency in Kentucky, Lexington from 1997 to 2000, when I started my internship as a family physician in Kentucky, University of Kentucky, Lexington. And Kentucky, the state of Kentucky, actually, at that time, 
in terms of colon cancer, lung cancer, there's a lot of tobacco uh, business uh, industry in that in that state. And the lung cancer and the colon cancer are really high. The colorectal cancer incidence is number two amongst all the state. So I vividly remember, actually, this is actually, I did my residency, but the, the reason I come back to be a cancer researcher and also family dogs really actually, I would say, was one of these patients I remember vividly. So I was intern my first year, and he come to me, we do the annual physical, and talking about his family history, he started asking, Dr. Dog, I am I doomed to get cancer? Meaning that he was talking about his family has a lot of cancer in the family. And he was asking the question, which is actually, I don't have answer that time. He's a European American. He's, American, he's I have family history of colon cancer, lung cancer, many cancer. And really he was asking whether he, there's a gene in his family that actually he's doomed to get a cancer. I don't have answer that time because as we know more, know more now. And that time I basically tell him, I said, well, I really cannot tell you for sure, but I think you can do a lot for yourself. And we're talking about, you know, screening lifestyle. That's the usual primary care dog does. But now we will understand more of why people get certain cancer and why people not get certain cancer. And we have a lot of more, more insight into this. You specifically study colon cancer. What have you learned about why colon cancer rates are so much higher for African-Americans? Yes, it's interesting. So colon cancer actually is largely it's a preventable disease, meaning that actually if we, amongst all the big cancer, lung cancer, breast cancer, colon cancer, prostate cancer, colon cancer is the most preventable cancer. The data Many years, years of scientific evidence have supported that lifestyle, environment play a big role. We call this a modifiable risk factor. For example, obesity, physical inactivity, certain life, and smoke and alcohol intake, less, less intake of fresh vegetables or processed food. Those are the factors contributing to the risk of colorectal cancer. Of course, we have also identified many, many genetic factors. But that being said, the one thing we're missing is actually the larger upstream environment. In talk, we're talking about your community, your city, your, your, where you live, the stress created by the environment. Now we know more about this. Now we drive this disparity and, and the incidence of, of cancer. Even though coral cancer has been decreasing dramatically because of screening and more treatment, but we still we see the widening disparity between African American and European Americans, meaning that both for both ethnic group, the incidence might have dropping. But the difference between the two group, actually, African American is the highest compared to European American as well as Asian and other uh, ethnic populations, is widening. You did a very large study of healthy colons, and found that in African Americans the right side of the colon ages faster than the left, that among European Americans, the left side of the colon ages faster. Tell me about that. African American compared to European American in general tends to get cancer diagnosed at a younger age than European American. You compare African American to European American, and there's more and more data supporting that now. If you get colon cancer, whether it's on the right side of the colon, the left side colon, there are two different diseases. There's more and more endorsement that colon cancer arrived from the right side colon is a different disease entity from colon cancer rise in the left side colon. Are you more likely to die if you have colon cancer on the right side of your colon? Yes, the right side colon cancer is much more aggressive than the left side colon, uh, colon cancer in general. Why do you suspect that more African Americans have right side advanced colon aging? Yeah, that's the question we're trying to really understand. So do you suspect that we're not born that way, but this evolves due to our environment and our lifestyles? Yes, I think there's a lot of speculation to this. We're talking about what are these factors from air pollution, from stress, from the, you know, you cannot walk in your community. All of this come down to what are these will impact physiology in the local environment, because we're talking colon cancer, we're talking about in the gut uh, microenvironment, very strong evidence supporting that. The microbiome in the guts links to risk as well as survival when you're diagnosed with colon cancer, and also has been linked to obesity, diabetes, and many other diseases. So that's one. The other part we're talking about actually, 
There's an alarming trend of obesity. United States, almost two-thirds of our adult population are considered as overweight or obese. Obesity is a stable risk factor for 14 cancers, including colon cancer. And actually now there's more and more younger adults getting the colorectal cancer at a very young age. The average risk getting diagnosed with colon cancer is about 64, 65. But now in the last two decades now, we see the sporadic colon cancer diagnosed in young adults in the 20, 30, 40, 50. Now mm. we have a new category called the young adult onset colon cancer. For those who are younger than 50, diagnosed colon cancer, actually the, the disease is different from the folks who are older. So we're not just scratch the surface now. As, as we're talking about risk disparity, we think the young age onset colorectal cancer, if you think that the tissue aging drives that, then we think our study really shed some lights on this. In the African-American, the right side colon tends to become older than the left side. That might be a reason to get more right side colon cancer than, than the European-Americans. So should this change recommendations for when people should start getting colonoscopies? Should we be getting them, especially African-Americans, at an even younger age? Yes, actually. So uh, there's a consensus from both ACS, American Health Society, as well as the U.S. Preventive Task Force has just issued new guidelines uh, in May 2021, endorse uh, screening uh, starting at age 45 for average risk population. Now about 10.5% of the, those colon cancer diagnosed younger than age 50. That's alarming. But we know that screening saves life. So the message, if anything, I can say, I would say, get screened if you're eligible. Screen, colon screen does save life. And uh, colon screening is not, it's not just for early detection. It's actually preventative in, in a sense. If the GI doctor or doctor do a screening, find a polyp, this is the opportunity for the doctor to take away the polyps. So I think screening has the benefit of both a detection as, as well as preventive measure. Do you feel hopeful about actions we can take to ensure our colon health? Yes. Number one, get screened. If you're eligible for screen, colon screening, you can save lives. That's number one. Second, that sleep well, eat well, exercise, don't smoke, don't drink. And I think that's the key for any, not just colon cancer prevention. This applies to many, our health in general. We talk of disease, we talk of obesity, diabetes, heart disease. Eat well, sleep well, exercise, do not smoke, do not drink excessively. Dr. Lee, thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. Thank you. Dr. Lee Lee is chair of the University of Virginia's Department of Family Medicine. He's also director of Population Health and co-director of the Cancer Control and Population Health Program at UVA Health. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Research is clear. There are well-established, long-standing health and mortality disparities between black and white populations in the U.S. But of course, race is much more complicated than black and white. Elias Bakhtiari is a sociology professor at William & Mary. He says when we think about racial health disparities, we also have to think about how race is constructed. Elias, you tell your students that all policy is health policy. What do you mean by that? Well, when we study things like unequal health outcomes and gaps in, in life expectancy and mortality rates, I think sometimes there's an assumption that a lot of that is driven by inequalities in healthcare access or something that's happening in the medical system. And a portion of it probably is. But a lot of research actually suggests that a good amount of what's causing inequalities in, in health and illness and mortality happens outside of the healthcare system. It's uh, driven by the social conditions that shape people's lives, uh, the types of jobs they have access to, uh, their neighborhood environments, the types of policies that support things like whether they can take time off of work or can access a minimum wage job. 
Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of research that suggests things like economic policies and social policies have concrete, tangible effects on, on population health. And so um, a lot of the kind of public health field has, has really adopted this notion that there is a, a kind of health effect of almost any type of policy we, we can think of. You're especially trying to understand outcomes for people who fall somewhere other than black and white in America. Which people from which countries are you thinking of here? What are the health circumstances and the influences on good health? Well, in, in a way, I wouldn't say I, I'm not looking outside of those groups, but rather thinking about how ideas about race and, and patterns of racial inequality can, can change over time and are kind of very complex and dynamic. Um, this is in part what sociologists mean when we talk about race as a social construction. Um, we see that identities and categories may be different here than they are in other countries, or in some cases, the way people understand their identity doesn't always match the ways in which we measure racial categories in things like health records and other statistics. In the U.S. Census and most other health records and, and data sources, individuals from the Middle East and North Africa are classified as white. Hmm. If you survey individuals from these countries or um, who have you know, parents or grandparents from these countries, they might say they don't fully identify as white or they don't really feel like they fit in to the U.S. racial hierarchy because they... They have different social experiences than than what they perceive other white people having. Um, they often experience things like discrimination that that can be very racialized, and so this can lead to a situation where these groups experience some of the risk factors for health problems that are often associated with things like discrimination and marginalization. But we don't actually track and study their outcomes because they aren't identified in the data. They're just kind of included in that category of white. And in a sense, they're almost statistically invisible. They don't really stand out. And, and as a result, we don't know a lot about their health outcomes. You've done research looking into how their health changed after 9-11. Tell me about that. Certainly things changed a lot after 9-11. Um, so in some of my research, I've looked at how in the period after September 11th, 2001, there was a time in which there was this big spike in things like hate crimes against Muslim and Arab Americans. Many uh, communities that were experiencing that were very, at times, kind of afraid about their futures and, and fearful. And we know that such conditions yeah. can create a lot of stress. And uh, within you know, medicine and population health, there's been a lot of interest lately in how stress can, can really have a lot of negative effects on the body and, and lead to a lot of poor health outcomes. So I was specifically looking at the health outcomes of mothers with a, a background in, in, in the Middle East. And what I found was that in that period right after 9-11, corresponding with this big spike in hate crimes against Muslim and Arab populations, there was an increase in low birth weight births, really only for those populations that suggest it was really driven by this increase in stress tied to that post-9-11 backlash. But it wasn't only for Arab and Middle Eastern populations, but we also saw it a little bit for some groups from South Asia who were targeted. So particularly for Sikh Americans. So these are individuals who are mostly coming from India, who are neither Arab nor Muslim, but Sikhs wear often long beards for men. They wear turbans as part of their uh, cultural and, and religious clothing. And so often they are swept up and targeted in a way that I think illustrates some of the complexity of how racism is often experienced and how it can affect a lot of otherwise seemingly very different groups in ways that makes it complicated to just use things like racial identity to understand the full impact on health outcomes. Hmm. You've also looked at health inequalities for historical immigrants in this country. What have you found when looking back to Irish immigrants who came across, or Jewish immigrants, and other groups historically in America? Yeah, well, so one, one kind of caveat to our understanding of contemporary health inequalities is that although we tend to see that minority populations have worse health, immigrants actually have better health than, than would be expected, often better health than other minorities, but in, in a lot of cases, even better health than um, the, the kind of white majority population. 
You mean when they arrive on the shores of America, they're often in better health than the average American? Absolutely. Some of the healthiest populations in America are recent immigrants. So there are a number of different reasons for for this. Uh, It's sometimes referred to as an immigrant paradox or as a a Hispanic paradox when referencing the Hispanic population because it's a little counterintuitive. Um, Immigrants often have relatively low-paying jobs and other conditions that we might often associate with worse health. But there's what's called a kind of selection effect. Um, if you just think about what it takes to make a decision to, to move you and perhaps your family to another country, you have to be relatively healthy in the first place. You have to be relatively often ambitious, um, perhaps relatively young, again, compared to maybe the population as a whole. And so the people who tend to migrate are often a little bit healthier than folks who might not be able to migrate or might not make a decision to migrate. Immigrants as a whole tend to have relatively good outcomes. And in the United States, we see a situation where they often arrive with pretty good health outcomes, but they tend to get worse the longer that they're here. Why would it worsen? Well, there are a number of different things that change. Um, The longer immigrants stay in a community or in, in a country, the more their kind of immediate social and economic conditions start to affect and reflect uh, in their health outcomes. So, for example, if they're working a low-paying job, that might not have as much of an immediate impact right away. But we see that over time, it starts to kind of accumulate through stress, through lack of resources, often through barriers to healthcare access. And so you have a number of factors that kind of kind of accumulate and can result in, in worsening health outcomes for immigrants who have been here longer. And part of that is kind of unique to the types of health problems that characterize our, our health system today. Things like heart disease and cancer kind of take a while to develop. And so one of the things that I've, I've found in my research is the patterns were very different in, say, the early 1900s, when there were a lot of immigrants arriving from places like Ireland and Italy and Central and Eastern Europe. Immigrants actually were a little bit less healthy and had higher rates of mortality than the U.S.-born population. But part of that is because infectious disease and other types of more immediate health problems played a much larger role in their daily lives. So, um, you know, we could look back to something like the 1918 influenza pandemic and see that immigrants actually had really bad health outcomes and had high rates of mortality during the pandemic, in part because they were living in very crowded living conditions, had low-paying jobs. And so whereas we don't tend to see that as much among today's immigrants when we're looking at things like heart disease and cancer, I think there's some evidence that when when dealing with something like infectious disease, whether it's um, COVID or influenza and tuberculosis and other infectious diseases in the early 1900s, that link between your social and economic conditions and your, your kind of daily life and your ultimate health and mortality outcomes is a little bit tighter and closer. Uh, It's a little more immediate. Elias Bakhtiari, thank you so much for sharing your insights with me on With Good Reason. Thank you for having me. Elias Bakhtiari is a professor of sociology at William & Mary. People living with HIV have extra healthcare needs, but they're often some of the least able to get those needs met. Leah Adams is a psychology professor at George Mason University. She studies how people with HIV receive health care for chronic pain, especially in the face of widespread health inequities. A good proportion of folks living with HIV report experiencing chronic pain. And within different demographic groups, that number is higher. So it can range anywhere from 30 to 50 percent, depending on which groups you're talking about. So, for example, women living with HIV report higher rates of chronic pain, but we aren't 100% sure of the cause. So there's some question that the virus itself can cause pain, and we also, there's reason to believe that certain medications can contribute to pain as well, not also forgetting the fact that people could have already been predisposed to having chronic pain aside from living with HIV as well. You know, so many studies have been done in recent years that women, people of color, people with substance abuse issues are all less likely to be taken seriously in a healthcare situation. 
Are you finding that's also the case within HIV patients? Yeah, so I'm right now working on a pilot study where we're hoping to get more information about that exact question. I'll say anecdotally, I've worked a good bit in chronic pain um, outside of HIV, and, and that's a really common experience is I've talked to my provider. They keep telling me I don't seem to have a reason to have pain, but I'm telling them I have pain, and then it turns into a cycle where the patient is the one trying to prove that they're in pain, and then the provider is even less likely to believe that they're experiencing pain. And so I think when you apply it to folks living with HIV and pain, you have those same dynamics at play, but I think you have some others as well, right? So one is generally a squeeze for resources when you think about folks from minoritized and marginalized backgrounds, that they're often seeking care um, from systems that are already extremely overburdened. And so there tends to be less time to devote to non-HIV specific care. So maybe not as much time to go into detail about pain and ways to treat pain. Um, and then I think particularly because chronic pain has been wrapped around with the opioid epidemic, I think you run into situations where, where folks feel like their providers are looking at them as though they're drug seeking or, you know, seeking opioids right. for, for management instead. And so I think that all of the messiness that exists in chronic pain treatment already is then amplified when you're talking about chronic pain and HIV and amplified further when you're talking about communities that have often been marginalized and mistreated. Can you think of ways that we could help the medical establishment overcome this problem? You know, I think there's been a lot of work around more collaborative care where providers aren't coming in as the sole experts. I, you know, from my background as a mental health provider, I'm a clinical psychologist by training. You know, one of the things that we often are guided by is the idea that the client or the patient is the expert in their own lives. Um, and so I might have a good sense of different treatments or different approaches that could be helpful for that person, but ultimately I'm taking my cues from that client or that patient. I think more consistently applying that kind of approach in, in other medical fields and specialties could create um, lasting changes because, you know, we also know from a, a health disparity standpoint, when we jump over that hurdle from access, so making sure that folks are able to access care, we know that there are pretty significant um, and systematic differences in terms of how people feel about their care, um, in terms of the, their perceived quality of care and ultimately how that maps onto outcomes. And so I think a lot of that is grounded in a place of not feeling heard and not feeling understood and, and not feeling like there is that sense of connection where a, the provider really cares about them. You know, I, I often am thinking about my own father who passed away at the start of the pandemic, but he'd had a lot of other medical conditions. And one of his last providers, he, you know, we had spent many, many years of going back and forth and me trying to make sure that, um, that he was abiding by his provider's recommendations. And intermittently he did and intermittently he didn't. But I've continued to be struck by his last provider that he had, I remember us having a conversation around the recommendations for what he was going to do. And I asked him, I said, well, you know, dad, are, are you going to do those things? And he said, I think I'm going to, because, you know, she just, I think she really cares about me. You know, I can tell from the way that, that she talks to me and the way that she takes time with me, that she, she understands that it's hard <laughs> and that I'm trying and I just, I get the sense that she wants me to succeed. And so I think I'm going to, I'm going to try harder. And 
you know, I, I just think that that says a lot for how much that that provider relationship really can do when it comes to people feeling understood and then ultimately following through with the recommendations. That's a really powerful story. I can totally see that. And maybe the message to providers is you may be feeling empathy, but don't be afraid to let it fly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and, and letting it fly in a way, right, I think especially medicine has, has such a, a history of, of having that strict hierarchy, right? I am the doctor. I know more. You are the patient. You know less. And I think you add in historically marginalized groups as, as patients or clients and just feeling a sense of the, the physician's office being a place that's patronizing um, or being a place where you're not really going to be valued, that your lived experience isn't going to be valued, that you're going to be told what to do. That's not a good feeling. And, and I don't think it's, it's one that gets people motivated to make the kinds of changes that could be helpful to them. I am sorry that you lost your father so recently. I know that must still feel very raw. Thanks. I appreciate that. I also understand you're looking at an expansion of Medicaid telehealth as one possible solution to really just ease up the barriers to access for people. Yeah. So, you know, the the Medicaid telehealth expansion project is one um, that I'm collaborating with Dr. Allison Cuellar, who's one of my colleagues here at George Mason. Um, and she's really a, a lead on that project. Um, but we're working really closely together to see the extent to which that expansion for telehealth services that's happened during the pandemic. So allowing different uh, service providers to provide care via video conferencing, for example, whether that has um, provided opportunities to increase equity um, in terms of care delivery and outcomes. So I, I think it's really critical that when we're talking about health disparities, access is a huge issue. It's, it's of course, a really a really important piece in thinking about general health outcomes, but it's not the only piece, right? Once people are able to meet with a provider, I think it's equally important to understand what that process is like because that process is so critical for determining those outcomes. And so our hope is that by talking to folks who receive Medicaid, who receive telehealth services, talking to providers who have provided these telehealth services during the pandemic, and also talking to advocacy organizations, that by getting these multiple stakeholders' perspectives, that we can have a sense of not only did it improve access, but did it also, did it work well? <laughs> did people feel like they were able to get their needs met um, in the course of those interactions? And did it result in high quality care. Before we close out with each other, is there something else that I haven't thought to ask you related to inequities in healthcare with HIV that you think would be important for us to bring up? You know, I, I talked a bit about when we think about disparities, we should be holistic in terms of all aspects, right? So there's access, there's the quality of treatment and then, you know, the functional outcome, did your symptoms decrease or was your health condition adequately addressed? I think we, we should apply the same kind of lens to HIV too. Um, you know, there's the HIV care cascade and, and each of those pieces, we can see evidence of disparities across outcomes too. So, you know, the first step being making sure people have access to testing. Well, we know that not all groups have equal access to testing, okay? Uh, linking up to care once you're diagnosed. We know that not all folks have equal access to that. Getting medication and then being able to be adherent enough that your viral load is suppressed so that you're undetectable in terms of your viral load. We know that there's variation there when it comes to um, 
equity across groups. And so I just think it's really important that whenever we have a conversation about disparities, that we recognize that disparities happen across a whole spectrum of critical points and critical behaviors. Um, and so to me, that that's just a really important piece to hone in on um, because I don't think we're going to solve the issue by ignoring that it, it it's happening across a variety of time points. You're so right. And this is really a good time for all of us to have extra empathy because we've all just gone through the pandemic and had the experience of how hard it was to get tested and to get results and to manage our lives in a timely way while navigating a life-threatening illness, right? Yeah. You know, with COVID, that's a rel relatively short-lived experience. But with HIV, we're talking about the rest of your life and making sure that you're able to or that you are in a situation where you're able to be consistent in that way for the rest of your life is a really big consideration alongside just managing all the other aspects of life that we experience. Well, Leah Adams, thank you for talking with me about this on With Good Reason. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Leah Adams is a professor of psychology and women and gender studies at George Mason University. She was named Outstanding Professor by the State Council of Higher Education for Virginia. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monacan Nation, the original people of the land and waters of her home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Maya Neer and Cassandra Deering are our interns. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>